The following message is brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of Crown Point Baptist Church and Pastor Mark Ermler. Amen. That's the hope of the Christian life, that uh, there's someone inside of me uh, that is a deity, lives within, Christ lives within, he is the key to the Christian life. I tell, I tell teenagers all the time, the greatest thing about the Christian life, this may shock you, but the greatest thing about the Christian life is Jesus Christ. And uh, if you don't walk with him, you don't have a whole lot left. And it's that reality that he lives in us. Okay, children, you can't head out. I see them heading out. That's a problem. You head out. No, no problem. You can head out for um, your time, and uh, that'll be great. Go to Genesis 45, if you would. Genesis chapter number 45. Thank you, team, for that singing that song, reminding us of that great truth that Christ lives in us. And we're going to be looking right here at Genesis 45. Genesis 45, and uh, we will be here in just a moment um, Going through a passage of scripture, I hope will be a help. Well, it's wonderful to be here. I think it was just um, a few months ago, uh, my uh, brother and myself had the, proper, uh, the privilege of touring your facilities here and seeing what the Lord was doing, and that was certainly an encouragement, especially in light of our visit here coming just for a few days. Now, um, my, uh, uh, the team here, will, of course, will be conducting a youth rally on Wednesday night, and I, I hope if you know teenagers, let me encourage you to uh, invite them out. We'll probably say more about that tonight. Uh, but anybody, I'm guessing about 12 to about 19, we'd love to have him here on Wednesday night. So if you have a neighbor, a cousin, niece, nephew, a friend, if you're a teenager, whatever, uh, that we'd love to have here on Wednesday night. I think it's going to start, Brother Luke, at what time? 5 o'clock. And it'll go till... Eight, okay, that'll work, five to eight, and allow the team will be here. I won't have the privilege of being here because uh, I'm going to have to head somewhere on Wednesday, but the team will be here for that, and they'll do a great job. They'll be out recruiting tomorrow, and Tuesday they'll be in the area inviting teenagers uh, at some of the schools as kids walk home and uh, things of that nature, so they'll try to find as many teens as they can. So you help us with that, and you have brochures, correct? Brother Luke, okay, he has uh, something you can hand them and invite them to be a part of that, and uh, that would be great. Uh, on Wednesday night. Okay, well, we're going to go to Genesis chapter number 45. I've got to introduce it uh, this, mes- uh, this way, the message. I, uh, um, uh, for years, uh, 33 years, uh, my team and my wife and I and have had a privilege of uh, ministering to, to teenagers. Uh, last week, we were in a Christian school not too far from here. A week before, a Christian school a couple hours from here. And, and we have the privilege of going to a different Christian school every week and uh, uh, conducting a program, and uh, that's what we've been doing uh, since about mid-September. And so we're, I think we're about to be ready to begin our fourth week. Now, this is a little different week for us, and I've got to be honest with you. Normally, I preach to teenagers, and I've got to be honest with you, for years, years, I shouldn't tell you this, but for years, I did not like to preach to adults. I just love teenagers. And then one day it hit me as I was preaching to adults, I learned something about adults. You know what adults are, don't you? They're teenagers with wrinkles. Okay, so... Um, uh, the truth is, I realize, okay, adults, because I am one too, uh, we got all the same issues we got to deal with, and so I just preach to you like you're a bunch of teenagers. Is that okay? And so t- this morning, we're going to deal with what I would consider in 33 years of ministry, primarily to youth, and I do preach to adults, don't get me wrong, we, we do revival meetings from time to time, but, but uh, the number one problem, at least in dealing with teenagers, and I assume it's a big one with adults still, is dealing with the issue of bitterness. Bitterness. I think most of us would recognize that a dysfunctional home is far more prevalent today than perhaps it was a generation ago. And uh, we deal with teenagers all the time that come from homes where things are said that are hurtful, things have been done that are hurtful, perhaps a marriage is broken up and the kids uh, uh, have been caught in between. We all know that these things exist. So I want to deal with a subject matter that hopefully will be a help here this morning and 
I'm going to simply call the message God's formula for forgiveness. God's formula for forgiveness. Uh, what do you have to do when, you, when it comes to a point somebody's wronged you and you need to forgive? How do we biblically work through this so that we get liberty and freedom on the other side? And we all know that um, when there's an unforgiving spirit, that person, whether they know it or not, holds you in bondage. When you know, that person did that to me, I can't believe it. And I've certainly dealt with some young people that I thought some pretty bad things had happened. I remember a few years ago, a young man stood to the microphone to give a testimony on our final night, uh, about 220 pounds, big old boy. He got up and said, you know, a couple of years ago, he said, my mother said to me, you were a mistake. Now, let's just be honest, folks, that's rough. And I just tell teenagers everywhere, it doesn't matter what the circumstances of your conception, even if it was something that wasn't right, you're not a mistake. God has a purpose for you on planet Earth. Everybody in this room, nobody's a mistake. You have a purpose that God has for you uh, to, uh, on this planet. And, and, uh, but nonetheless, a uh, young man got up and that said, another young man got up and he said, I hated my dad. He said, I've never met my dad. He said, before I was born, my dad walked out of my life. He said, I've never texted him, never emailed him, never called him. I have no idea where he is. He said, I hated my dad. And then he went on to give a testimony of forgiving the father that walked out of his life. A man he never met. I've met teenagers who hate a man they've never met. Seems strange, doesn't it? But nonetheless, uh, so I've certainly dealt with some young people that have had uh, some pretty serious situations. And yet in a room this size, I don't know you. And let me just simply say up front here in this revival meeting, and I really don't talk to people. So if I'm preaching, you're thinking, somebody told the preacher. Really, nobody did. I'm just asking the Lord, would you lay a message on my heart? Would you lay a truth we need to deal with in my heart? And so that's my burden in these, uh, these services. And, and we want to deal with things that will hopefully be a help to you. So we're going to go to Genesis 45, and we're going to look at a life of a man who was wrong, probably worse than any of us. I, I could ask this this morning, have you, how many of you have ever been sold into slavery? Uh, I don't know, but I would assume most people, nobody would raise their hand. Uh, I could ask you how many of you have been framed and thrown into prison when you were completely innocent. I was preaching one time, and I did ask that. And I said, hey, I'm just joking around. I said, how many have ever been framed and, and thrown into prison when you were innocent? One dear old lady in the front row, uh, row, she raises her hand, dead serious. I think, let's just leave that alone, moving right along. Let's ask no questions. Okay, but the point is, most of us have not been wrong on the level of Joseph. Joseph was wrong. His brothers sold him into slavery, and when they did, it threw him into 13 years of slavery in prison. And he hadn't done anything wrong. So I think we can all realize that Joseph was wronged on a pretty severe level. And years later, he ends up meeting those brothers again. At this point, most of you know this, Joseph is the second most powerful man on planet Earth. He was number two in the land of Egypt, which at that time was the leading military power. So he was the second most powerful man on planet Earth. And he meets his brothers who wronged him. Oh, I mean, in our culture, that would be a setup for a get back at your brothers, man. Let them have it. And, of course, that's what concerned them. They were concerned about that. So let's begin by picking up, and I believe in Joseph's life here, we can find three steps in God's formula for forgiveness. Because more than once in my ministry, I've had a teenager look at me with clenched teeth and say, I just can't forgive, fill in the blank. Remember a young lady down in Loma, down in, uh, excuse me, near the border, McAllen, Texas, and 
I was preaching at a camp there. It was an English week, but it was largely kids whose parents spoke, spoke Spanish, and they, they were probably more dominant in English. And I was uh, preaching that camp, and a young lady came up to me, and, and uh, she with clenched teeth said, I just can't forgive her. And it was an aunt uh, that um, had recently murdered uh, her favorite uncle. Uh, it was just a terrible situation. But, you know, sometimes you hear, I just can't forgive fill in the blank. And sometimes it's pretty bad situations. <laughs> well, this passage of Scripture gives us God's formula for forgiveness. And I believe some people try to forgive without doing it the Bible way. So let's be helped from the Word of God. Okay, so let's begin in verse number 3. Could we do that? It says, And Joseph said unto his brethren, Now you have to understand the brother, uh, he's revealing himself to his brothers. I am Joseph, doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. Don't you just love the Bible? <laughs> you see the humor in that. I mean, of course they're troubled at his presence. He's the second most powerful man on planet Earth, and he's the guy they sold into slavery. When he was 17 years old, they did him dirty. They did him wrong. I sometimes tease with teenagers, and I say, you know, don't pick on your brother, younger brother because he might come out of a different side of the gene pool. You know what I'm talking about? In other words, you know, you end up five foot eight, 145 pounds, and that kid brother, you know, he catches a little different genetic structure. He gets six foot five, 250 pounds, solid muscle. Okay, that's not smart. Okay, there were trouble in his presence. You know, Joseph kind of now doesn't look like a little 17 year old that you can throw around. Notice again what he says, and Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. Now I'm reading into this, but I kind of think they're backing away. You know what I'm talking about? They're heading for the exits. He says, come near to me, I pray you. And they came near. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother. And I'm sure they were thinking that's what we were afraid of. He says it again. I am Joseph, your brother, whom ye sold into Egypt. Notice that word, ye sold. He lays the guilt right out there before him. Now, therefore, be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that ye sold. He does it again. Me hither. Now, notice this. For God did send me before you to preserve life, verse number 7. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth. Now, this is an unbelievable statement. Because Joseph, here he is, revealing himself to the brothers that wronged him. And he says two things. Number one, you guys sold me into slavery. Now, was that true? Yeah, they were guilty. They really were murderous brothers. Several of them wanted to kill Joseph. If it wasn't for Reuben, he probably would have been. Obviously, God used Reuben to protect his life because he had promised Joseph what, had, uh, what was going to happen. So uh, here's, uh, uh, he says, you sold me into, into slavery. And then he's, just seconds later, he says, God sent me to Egypt. So I got a question for you. How did Joseph get to Egypt? Did his brethren sell him to slavery? Is that how he got there? Or did God get him into Egypt? And the answer is, they're both true. They're both true. Now, this is phenomenal theology. Many times you may not know this, but there's theological debates and there's theological tension. And, uh, but this is just phenomenal. Joseph's what I call systematic theology is phenomenal, and he never went to seminary. I think that's why he had such good systematic theology, personally. But anyway, he's saying, you guys sinned. You guys made a sinful choice. You sold me to slavery. And then he turns around and says this, but God sent me to Egypt. Now, this teaches us something that's profound, and that is this. God did not have anything to do with the brother's sinful choice. You say, how do we know that? Because the Bible says God does not tempt us with evil. So God certainly did not tempt them to do the wrong thing. But you have to understand, many times we don't understand God. Did you know that God is way bigger than you think he is? Do you know that God transcends time? 
The Bible says in the book of Isaiah, chapter number 57, verse number 15, it says that God inhabits eternity. Now think about that. God lives in every moment of time at the same time. You know, while I'm preaching to you right now, God is watching me be born. And while I'm preaching to you now, he's watching me die, 2050, something like that. Uh, but anyway, way out there. And he's watching everything in between at the same time. But how about this? While I'm preaching to you right now, he's watching Abraham watch plant, walk planet Earth. At the same time while I'm preaching, he is watching the great white throne judgment. Can I say this, friend? God didn't predict the future in the book of Revelation. He, he, was, he watched it. Years ago, I went to a conference in 1999, and here was its theme. Entering the new millennium in the arms of him who's already been there. Whoa. Think about that one. God's already been in 2018. Did you know that? He's in 2019. Now, God says that he's eternal. He lives in every moment of time at the same time, and he has no beginning and no end. Now, we are finite beings. You know what that means? You'll never be able to fully comprehend that. So don't try because you might fry your hard drive. And if you're like me, I need as much hard drive as I have. You know what I'm saying? So it's just incomprehensible. Okay, that's God. So you say, well, preacher, what are you saying? Well, I'm simply saying this. The Bible also says God is great in power. It also says he's, his, he's infinite in his wisdom. I like to put it this way. This is not original with me. Has it ever occurred to you that nothing's ever occurred to God? God's never been walking down the street saying, you know, I never thought of that. Everything there was to think, he's always thought. At the same time. Now, when you're preaching to teenagers in Christian high school, they're, they're looking at you like totally because everything they thought they knew when they go into a test, they can't remember any of it. <laughs> you remember back when you were in school? But you know, the point is, seriously, God is, he's infinite in his wisdom, in his power. The only thing God can't do is sin. Did you know that? I love that song that we used to sing as a kid. God can do anything, anything but fail. <laughs> See, so, so God's big, so big. You say, what, what are you saying this for? I'm saying it for this. Joseph understood this. He said, you guys made a sinful choice. You really did. You sold me slavery. It was wrong. God didn't have anything to do with it. But God is so wise and so big and so powerful, he took your sinful choice and he wove it into my life to accomplish the will of God without having anything to do with your sinful choice. Now, that's amazing. Now, that brings us to something, friends. It's point number one in God's formula for forgiveness is number one, you must trust God to work it together for good. You must trust God to work it together for good. And I will tell you the reason many people struggle with uh, forgiveness is because they never do this step. It's like, oh, they ruined my life. Man, that messed everything up. That ruined it. Man, I'll never recover from that. That is, you see, all of that is unbelief. Because the Bible says, for we know that all things work together for good to them that Love God to them that are the called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. So the point is simply this, friends. God is so big, so powerful, so loving, so wise that he can take other people's sinful choices because, friends, may I say this, and maybe I forgot this point, better put this in. You are a free moral agent. You know what that means? You can make sinful choices and God doesn't stop you. We live in a pretty wicked world, don't we? I think we're all shocked and stunned with what happened in Las Vegas. That person made a sinful choice. Can I say this carefully? God didn't have anything to do with it. But you're a free moral agent. You can make sinful choices. And I'm not trying to be unkind, but some of you did on the way to church. Said something unkind. Or maybe got, you know, 
said things you, you regret. Okay, we make sinful choices. All of us do. It's, not, it's obviously not what we want. You wouldn't be in church if you wanted it. But we make sinful choices. And what the Bible is saying is we're free moral agents. We make sinful choices and God doesn't have anything to do with them. But God is so great, so big, and so powerful that he takes other people's sinful choices that ill affect our life. And he weaves them into our life to accomplish the will of God without having anything to do with the sinful choice. Now that's amazing. I have a young man, a friend of mine, I know he's not young anymore, but traveled with me when he was young in the 80s when we were both young. He would tell the story that when he was five years old, he heard a large bang in his parents' bedroom. He's five years old. He opens the bedroom door and no teenager, excuse me, no five-year-old should see this, no teenager, nobody should see this, but his dad was on the carpet with a, in a pool of blood and with a shotgun, he'd taken his life. Five-year-old kid discovered it. You say, preacher, that's bad. You're right, it is bad. I think we'd all agree, and I realize we don't know all the circumstances, but I think we'd all agree that God didn't have anything to do with that man's pulling the trigger. He made a sinful choice, a selfish choice. We realize there could be circumstances. I don't know what they were. But he made a sinful choice, and, of course, it brought difficulty into the life of that young man, his brothers, and his mother. Now, that young man is now an evangelist. And he has opportunities to go into public schools and speak on. Anybody want to just venture a guess of what he speaks on in public schools? And the answer is suicide. He has told me, Brother Van Geldren, he said, when I tell my story, he said, it's God. I know it's God. But he said, you can't hear a pin drop. He said, uh, when I tell about the bloodstained carpet, and I tell about my dad having no life insurance, and I tell about the fact we could not leave that house, and I tell about the fact my mom had to move the bed over the bloodstained carpet, and uh, how we uh, worked through all those difficulties, he said, there on the palm of my hand. Now, I think we could all say that that father made a sinful choice, but did God... Is, has done and is doing a remarkable thing in taking that father's sinful choice, weaving it into that young man's life to accomplish the will of God. He's working it together for good. Now, we all know it would have been better if he didn't make that sinful choice, but aren't you glad that God can work it together for good? <laughs> and now he sees it that way. He's not bitter at his dad. Probably has compassion for his dad making that choice. But the point, friend, simply, friend, for this is, number one, you've got to start with, okay, God, I'm going to trust you to work this together for good. They made a sinful choice. It's like this. I remember just a couple of years ago, I was preaching. I didn't preach. It wasn't this message, but I was preaching on bitterness. I have several messages on it because young people so struggle with this. And, and I was preaching on bitterness, and a, and, a, and a pastor came up after it was Sunday school. He came up and he had tears in his eyes. He said, folks, I realized something today. The man was older than I was. He was, I, I, I was assuming at the time, he was upper 50s. He said, brother, he said to people, he said, he said, I got to admit something to you. I realized something this morning I've never realized, realized before. I'm bitter at my dad. He said, my dad's gone, been gone to heaven a long time. He said, my dad was a good man. He'd worked and he'd come home, provide every need. But he said, he'd come home, he'd put up the newspaper and he said, he never engaged me as a son. He said, he was a passive parent because I dealt that one day with the two problems that I see with fathers, his number one angry fathers and another two absent fathers. And I point out that absent fathers aren't necessarily physically absent. Sometimes they're just parently absent. <laughs> they're there, but they don't engage their children in parenting. And he said, that's what my dad did. Provided everything we had, but he never, we had no father-son relationship. And he said, I realize I've been bitter at my father. 
See, so these kind of wrongs can come along, and, and uh, in order to overcome that, what there has to be is, okay, God, that wasn't your will, but God, I'm trusting you to work it together for good. It's like I've had several, over the years, I've had several young men come from broken homes. I want to ask you a question. Those young men that travel with me from broken homes, which teenagers do you think they really have effectiveness in helping? And the answer is, teenagers from broken homes. Whoa. Isn't that amazing? I had one young lady travel with me, and she told me after she had given her testimony, very difficult home situation, a father who's got major issues in his life, and she told me later, she said, this is the first time in my life I've known into my head, but this is the first time in my life I saw that God used the difficult circumstances I came from to be a help to someone else, and it really helped her to realize God is going to work it together for good. But it starts with forgiveness, always starts with simplicity of saying, you know, I don't like this, I wish it hadn't happened, but you know, they made a sinful choice, I, I can't, can't have, but I can trust God to work it together for good. Do you guys know what good things are? Oh, by the way, you guys, I know that's a Chicagoism. I did grow up in Chicago, so every once in a while it slips out. So just pardon the use guy stuff, okay? But anyway, uh, but um, I, uh, everything about what's good, you only know what's good. I know this is a crazy illustration, but imagine, I'm not going to do this, by the way, but imagine on the way out the door, I just pick you out, I hand you $100 and say, I don't know why, I just, I just got an extra 100 bucks. <laughs> That'd be unusual, but anyway, I just got an extra 100 bucks. don't think I'm going to need it, and boy, I'd like to have you. Oh, now let's just imagine you walk out the door, you say to your spouse, I can't believe this. Unbelievable. Man, that preacher, I'm not coming back tonight. Man, he gives me 100 bucks. Man, that ruined my day. Man, I probably ruined my week. I can't believe it. You go home, you call the pastor and say, Pastor, I'm, while that preacher's here, I'm not coming back. He gave me a hundred bucks. Man, he's ruined everything. I've had a terrible day. I'm just unbelievable. I just, you, would you find that to be odd? You know, friend, when we complain, why, why'd that have to happen? My wife, why'd she say that? My husband, why'd he do that? My dad. Do you know God's up in heaven saying, why are you doing that? Don't you realize I'm working all this together for good? I'm working it together for, could I say, a spiritual $100. I know it's a poor, poor analogy, but I'm trying to help us to see it. You see, friends, the very first thing, you can't forgive somebody you think has ruined your life. The beginning of healing begins when you realize, they haven't ruined my life. God's bigger than them. And all this bad stuff that I happened, it may really be bad, but God's going to work it together for good. For we know that All things work together for good. Did you catch that little word, all? And all I'm simply trying to help us, friends, is understand it's number one. It's the very first step. And I believe this is where many people stumble. They're not able to say, God, it's going to be good. It's going to be good. This is going to be good. Just like sometimes when my little girls were younger and we'd we'd go someplace they'd been, you know, maybe a restaurant or a place, a fun place, you know, and this is going to be good. This is going to be good. Why? They've been there before. They liked it. Well, what God's simply saying, it's going to be good. It's all going to be good. Now, that brings us to a second point. We see the first one here, clearly. Uh, got to trust God to work things together for good. But we see a second point, and I'd like you to look at verse number 9 and 10, please. Well, let's look at 10. And thou shalt dwell in the land of Goshen, and thou shalt be near unto me, thou and thy children and thy children's children and thy flocks and thy herds and all that thou hast, and there I will nourish thee. For there are yet five years of famine, lest thou and thy household and all that thou, uh, that thou hast come to poverty. If 
Five more years of famine. Okay, so what he's saying here is this. I'll tell you what. You guys wronged me. You sold me to slavery. Uh, threw me into 13 years of slavery in prison. But now I'm in second control, and I see exactly what God's doing. He worked it all together for good so that when the famine came, you wouldn't die. So I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the best of the land, and for the next five years, I'm going to take care of your every need. Is that what you do to people who've wronged you? It brings us to number two, do good to those that wrong you. Number one, you've got to see it. God's going to work it together for good. Number two, do good to those that wrong you. Therefore, if thine enemy, or, or I should put it this way, dearly beloved, I beseech you, uh, which, oh, excuse me, dearly, I got the, got the verse, wrong verse in my mind. Uh, let's go to Romans chapter 12. I was going to quote it, but I got to get the wrong start here. So Romans chapter number 12, and I want you to look at verses 19 through 21. Romans chapter 12, then we'll come back. Keep a finger, though, there in Genesis. Romans chapter number 12, and I want you to look at verses 19 to 21. I was thinking of that dearly beloved uh, out of First Peter, but here it is. Romans chapter 12, verses verse 19. Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. Uh, for in so doing thou shalt heap coals of fire in his head. Be not overcome with evil, but overcome evil with? Good. That's exactly what Joseph did. He said, I'll tell you what, you guys have wronged me, but I'll tell you what, I'm gonna, the five more years of famine, I'm going to do you good. Now you say, well, you know, preacher, that person, they're not around me anymore. Obviously, if there's died, there's not a whole lot you can do. But if they're still alive, there's one thing all of us can do. The Bible says, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. When someone wrongs you, you know what God is saying? I want you to be a prayer warrior for that person who wronged you because you understand a need in their life like nobody else. Do you know when somebody wrongs you, you understand a chink in their armor? You understand a need in their life? Does that make sense? So God says, I want you to pray for them. So bare minimum, we ought to pray for people who wrong us. Pray for your angry father. I remember just this summer, a man giving a wonderful testimony. Grew up in a very abusive home. His father was extremely abusive. And he talked about forgiving his dad, restoring a relationship with his dad, and I believe leading his dad to the Lord Jesus. It was a wonderful story of God's grace. But you see, it starts with, uh, okay, I'm going to do him good. They did me wrong, I'm going to do him good. And friends, all I want you to understand here is that if nothing else, you can certainly pray for them. But there are some times you can literally physically do them good. They're still around. I have a grandmother who's, or she's now with the Lord, but I, uh, she was uh, just a remarkable woman. I briefly mentioned her in Sunday school. When she was in her younger years, before she had really begun to grow spiritually, there were several things that God used to really help her grow in the Lord. And one of them was this. She lived next door to a sister-in-law who was a kleptomaniac. It was her husband's brother's wife. They had no children, but lived next door. And this, this, this sister-in-law would come into my grandmother's house and steal things. This was back before you locked doors. I realize in California, leaving unlocked doors seems non-existent. But nonetheless, um, uh, at that time in Miami, I guess they didn't lock the doors. And she would just come in, help herself. It's not like she'd go down to the flea market and sell it. She'd just put it in her house. How would you like to walk through your next-door neighbor's house and see some of your stuff? (laughs) Oh, wow, yeah, that vase used to be in my... You know, that'd be kind of tough. (laughs) 
My grandmother was a meticulous gardener. Beautiful backyard, of course, tropical Florida. Uh, it's easy to, you know, the precipitation out there, humidity. Of course, it's a little different than Southern California. It's a little harder here because of water and things. But there, just beautiful backyard. And this sister-in-law, when she was gone, would come into her backyard and transplant flowers out of my grandmother's yard to hers. How would you like to walk out of your yard? Whoa, those plants jumped the fence. Wow, must be a new species. You say, preacher, what did your grandmother do? I mean, what did she do? She struggled. She's human like you and I. But she had very simple faith. She believed that if you overcome evil with good, she decided that's how you do it. So she would go into her kitchen and she'd bake a pie. My grandmother believed that a homemade pie was good. You know what? I still believe that, don't you? A homemade pie is good. And she'd bake it, you know, and fruit, you know, uh, fruit filling and, and, you know, how they used to weave, you know, how they weave. And, and uh, this was back before microwaves and all this kind of stuff. And, and she'd have it, you know, she'd make the pie crust from scratch, whatever that means. It just means it's good. Okay, but anyway, and she'd have it all there and have the pie filling. She'd, you know, the golden brown, the pie filling would start to bubble. Hopefully you, your lunch is not too far away. Okay, but anyway, and she'd pull it out there and steam coming off and she'd take it next door and she'd knock on her on her sister-in-law's door and hand her the fruit pie and she said I just want to tell you how much I love you you know that my grandmother never got bitter she baked a lot of pies but she never got bitter she overcame evil with good simple story but that's how you do it God says and um could be in a situation of a marriage, could be in a situation of other things. And then brings us to a final point. And we'll go, if you would, please, to Genesis 50 now, and we'll continue to just finish the message here. Number one, trust God to work it together for good. Number two, do good to those that wrong you. Obviously, if you can't be around them, pray. If you can be around them, then obviously do them good. But it brings us to one final point. And verse number 16, well, we'll start in verse 15 of the last chapter of Genesis. And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us and will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. In other words, they felt like he was just waiting for dad to die so he could throw the revenge. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall you say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of their brethren and their sin, for they did unto the evil. And now we pray thee, forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we be thy servants. I mean, they were scared. And Joseph said, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? For as for you, you thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good to bring to pass as it is this day to save much people alive. Therefore, fear ye not, I will nourish you. Did you see that? It's the Romans 8, 28 of the Old Testament. He said, first of all, he said, You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. See, he got that point down. And then he says, Hey, fear not, I'm gonna, I'll nourish you. I'll take care of you. But there's a third point we see in this passage. He reviews the first two, two points, but he comes to a first point because they finally come, they finally fall down, and they finally say, forgive us. And what does Joseph do? The Bible says he weeps, which to me is very clear. He already had forgiven them. Now, granted, you cannot give somebody forgiveness until they ask for it, but you can sure have it ready. Joseph didn't go to the brothers and say, I forgive you, because they, weren't, they didn't even ask for it. But when they asked for it, he gave it to them. 
The Bible says that God is ready to forgive. And Ephesians 4.32 says, And be ye kind one to another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, have forgiven you. Well, how does God forgive us? Well, he's ready to forgive. You know, aren't you glad as a Christian when you come and say, God, I messed up again, I was wrong. Aren't you glad? And I'm not trying to be sacrilegious, but aren't you glad God doesn't say, you know, that was really bad. Give me a couple days, I'll think about it. Aren't you glad God doesn't do that? Aren't you glad when some hellbound sinner comes and says, oh, Jesus, save me. Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't say, well, you were really bad. I'm going to have to think that one over. He doesn't do that. He's ready to forgive. And if God is ready to forgive in his infinity, the only way in our finiteness we can be ready to give, forgive is to do it. So forgiveness, friends, number three, you've got to forgive. Now, again, you can't offer it to them until they say, would you forgive me? And they may never ask that, but it's okay. You've already forgiven them. you got the package ready. You say, well, preacher, how do you do that? How do you forgive? Well, number one, you've got to start with, okay, God's working it together for good. This is good. Number two, God working their life. Lord, help them to see that blind spot. Lord, help them to deal with their anger problem. And then number three, okay, God. I forgive them. You say, what is forgiveness? The problem with forgiveness, it can be very abstract. So what is forgiveness? How can we make it concrete? And the answer is, Jesus did. In one of his parables, he uses an analogy that helps us understand forgiveness. And he uses the analogy of debt. I was preaching in Kenya, and I said, you know, we Americans are better at the analogy of forgiveness, at least illustrating it, than you Kenyans. Of course, I didn't tell them what the analogy was. The moment I said debt, they smiled, okay? We're pretty good at that. you know what I'm talking about? We Americans are really good at the debt thing. So here's a picture in the, in the book of Luke. It's a guy who owns an, you know, owes an enormous amount of money. Let's just face it, friend. When Jesus forgave us, it was a debt we could never repay. Our sin debt was enormous. Jesus forgave us. So what then is... Forgiveness, okay, well, let me help you with the word picture. If you owed me a million bucks, okay, we're just imagining, but if you owed me a million dollars and I forgave you the debt, how much would you owe me? Please say it out loud. And the answer is nothing. That's forgiveness. Forgiveness is walking into the courtroom of heaven on our knees in prayer and saying, God, that person wronged me, but I forgive them. They don't owe me anything. Have you ever noticed when you're bitter at somebody, you feel like they owe you something? Man, that guy owes me an apology. Man, that person over there, they owe me. Hey, uh, they hurt me. They owe me this. Forgiveness saying, God, they don't owe me anything. In fact, one surefire way to show you that you have not forgiven is if in your heart, yeah, that person needs to do that. They need to do this. You haven't forgiven. It's because forgiveness says there is no debt. And when you forgive, you know what God does? He heals the hurt. You know, if you're out here saying, well, preacher, I'm really not bitter, I'm really not angry, I'm just hurt. I'm not trying to be unkind, but I will tell you, hurt is legitimate for a short amount of time, but God's grace heals the hurt. So if the incident's a year old, even months old, and you say, I'm just hurt, you know what it indicates? You haven't biblically forgiven. Because God's grace heals hurt. It really does. So... um, You've got to forgive. And forgiveness is saying, okay, God, they don't owe me anything. I remember a new convert in Miami, Florida, came to me after I dealt with this truth. He said, Brother Van Gelderen, he said, I have a guy who owes me some money, and I, I wasn't necessarily preaching about real debt, but he says, it made me so mad. He said, I've made a decision. I'm just forgiving him the debt. I want to be right with God. 
See, the friends, that, that he was literally taking the illustration, but the point is most of the time it's not financial. It's just, okay, God, they don't owe me anything. And I'm talking to some dear person in this room who's carried a burden for years. Yeah, my mother was an angry mother or, or my dad or whatever. I, I've heard just horrific stories. You probably have too. Now you say, well, preacher, what happens if somebody wrongs someone and in wronging the person they break the laws of the United States? Now that's a really good question and one of which we need to deal with because it's important. Because obviously today with molestation and sexual abuse, these things are real things. Tragically, they are real. So you say, well, preacher, what would you do if a kid came to you and said he's been taken advantage of in this arena? What would you tell him to do? I said, well, this is what you need to do. Number one, you've got to forgive the perpetrator, but at the same time, you can't forgive somebody else. You say, what do you mean? If you break the laws of the United States, friends, then only person that can deal with that is the United States government. That's like this. You can't forgive for somebody else. In other words, if you come to me and say, my dad was an angry man, uh, you know, the, the point is, I will tell you, friend, I can't forgive for your dad. I mean, for you, you have to forgive your dad. And my point is simply this. When you break the laws of the United States, it is right for you to turn the person in if they've broken the laws. At the same time, you forgive them for the wrong against you. You're completely consistent. So I think it's important to recognize when laws are broken, the perpetrator needs to be turned in because you can't forgive for the United States. They've got to deal with crimes broken, and you've got to deal with the sin against you, and that's where you forgive them for you and then turn them in. Then you can be completely consistent if you don't turn them in out of a vengeful spirit, out of a desire for the sin to be taken care of. Do you know why God says he's put up governments? To deal with evil. <laughs> to deal with evil. That's why governments are there. <laughs> Does he bear the sword in vain? And so the point is, friends, I think this is where Christians have to recognize that you can be entirely consistent and personally forgiving them, but turning them in because they broke the law. And they need to be dealt with for what they broke the law doing, particularly in molestation and abuse that needs to be dealt with and, uh, uh, because we don't want anybody else to be a victim. So certainly, uh, that I hate to even bring it up, but that's certainly something that we need to work through biblically, but you've got to forgive. God, they don't owe me anything. Uh, the year, I believe, was 1947. Corrie ten Boom was giving her testimony in a church in Munich, Germany, when she saw him. How many are familiar with the story of Corrie ten Boom and the famous The Hiding Place? If you're not, Corrie and Betsy, who was a, a sister and their father, hid Jews during the Nazi occupation of Holland. They were watchmakers, they were Dutch citizens, and they hid Jews. They felt it was their Christian obligation to protect people from being slaughtered by uh, the Holocaust. Risked their lives to hide these people, and when they did so, um, a neighbor turned them into the Gestapo. The Gestapo raided their house, never found the Jews, but did take off, uh, take the two, uh, the two sisters, Corey and Betsy and the father, they took them to concentration camps. The father went one direction and ended up in a few days because he was frail, dying uh, early on in his imprisonment in the concentration camp. Corey and Betsy ended up going to Ravensbrück concentration camp, which was a horrific concentration camp. There, Corey, the stronger of the two physically, watched her younger frail sister die a slow, terrible, agonizing death while she helplessly watched. After her sister Betsy died, Corey was released from prison on a clerical error. <laughs> 
It saved her life. She, of course, after the war, God put her on a mission, and she began to go and tell her testimony of God's forgiveness for what the Nazis had done. She was standing one day giving her testimony in a church in Munich, Germany, when she saw him. At first she saw a middle-aged man, brown coat, brown felt-tip hat. Then she saw the gray uniform and the viscered cap with skull and crossbones. She recognized him, former guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp. After the service, the man came up holding his hand out and said, Fraulein, a wonderful message. How good it is to know that all of our sins are in the depths of the sea. He said, I was a guard at Ravensbrück concentration camp. And Corey ten Broom wrote later, my blood seemed to freeze. He said, since that time, I've become a Christian. And I know God has forgiven me for the awful and terrible things I did there. But she said, he said, Fraulein, I want to hear it from your lips too. Will you forgive me? And at that, he holds out his hand, the handshake being the sign of forgiveness. Corey ten Boom wrote later, I stood there. And I could not. Betsy had died in that place. How could he, simply for the asking, erase her slow, terrible, agonizing death? She said it seemed like hours, it only could have been seconds, but it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing that I ever had to do, for I knew I had to do it. For I knew that God's forgiveness in my life was dependent upon forgiving of others. Did you know that? For if you forgive men your trespasses, your heavenly Father will forgive your trespasses. If you forgive not the men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's written to Christians. That's not talking about heaven and hell. That's talking about Christians. In other words, friends, when we harbor unforgiveness, 1 John 1, 9 doesn't work. There is no way to restore fellowship with God, none. And Corey ten Boom knew it. She said, I knew that God's forgiveness in my life, I'm talking about relationally, was dependent on my forgiving others. She said, I knew what I had to do. She said, I cried out to God. Oh, God, I'll lift my hand. You supply the feeling Eh, kind of wish she'd used the word grace, but I think that's what she meant. She wrote slowly, woodenly, mechanically. She said, I lifted my hand, and she said, when I did so, something incredible took place. She said, I looked at the guard, and she said, I forgive you, my brother. I forgive you with all of my heart. And she wrote later, I have never experienced God's forgiveness, so, uh, excuse me, God's love so intensely as I did at that moment. God's formula for forgiveness. Trust God to work it together for good. Number two, pray for those to do the good, that, them that wronged you. And then number three, okay, God. They don't owe me anything. I'm letting it go. I'm hitting the delete button. They don't owe me anything. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the teaching and preaching ministry of Crown Point Baptist Church. If this message was a blessing to you, please consider leaving us a review or sharing the message on social media. Thanks once again for tuning in.